Well, if I, I don't know if there are any adults in the world as spoiled rotten as professional athletes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, think about it. These guys, they're paid, or girls, they're paid millions of dollars to do a job, basically their dream job, okay? A job that many of us would do for fun in our spare time. They're catered around North America on team jets and buses and put up in posh hotels. And they get usually at least a third of the year off. We call it the off-season. Think about if you had that much of the year off. (laughs) Very spoiled. And if that wasn't enough, they're basically worshipped by their thousands of adoring fans. Talk about what many people would consider a sweet deal. They're very spoiled. But it seems like that they can become very unsatisfied with their situation at the drop of a pen. Right? They don't like a coach or a teammate or their, uh, the team's philosophy or their city that they're in or how much money they're making and then they end up demanding trades or forcing their way out. It, they, it doesn't seem like they would have much to put up with, but they sure have problems putting up with those things. They really do. Here's an example. For any of you who are Senator fans here, what happens if I bring up the name Alexi Ashen or Danny Heatley? What's your reaction to that? <laughs> what did they ever do to you? <laughs> really? But they seem to have trouble. Like what? This, they're a perfect example of what I'm talking about. One of them wanted more money from the team. The other was just unhappy with the situation. We just still don't even know why. And one of them, uh, like, sat out for a year. The other one forced to trade, and they're forever reviled by senator fans. And so they just can't put up with things. And now today, I'm not going to say that anyone here is as spoiled as these people. We aren't. But. I think sometimes, as Christians, we can start to feel like we should be spoiled. We should be taken care of in some of these ways. Many Christians, you probably know some of these people, they bounce from church to church to church, looking for a perfect situation, looking for maybe a perfect pastor, or a perfect community, or perfect doctrine, just going back and forth all over the place. Whether they can't put up with someone or something at a church, they become unsatisfied, and so they bail ship. If you're, and you know what? They're looking for a perfect church, but they'll never find one. If you're here at Calvary and you think you found the perfect church, and let me tell you, you haven't. <laughs> we're not perfect. That's because we're filled with imperfect people. You and I are one of them, right? We're filled with imperfect people, so we're an imperfect church. And one funny saying says, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because then it won't be perfect anymore. (laughs) People who church hop all over the place would really be much more spiritually healthy if they settled down and committed themselves to improving the community where they're at, being part of it. Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul wrote to a church they didn't have church hopping problems. They weren't going from church to church. But they did have what I call putting up with problems. 
putting up with each other, whether they had personal issues or forgiveness issues or theology issues or whatever, they ended up fighting and creating divisions and factions, and some would bail ship and would get out of there. Really, they did the opposite of connecting in community. They destroyed community. Have you ever felt like it was hard to put up with people in the church, or it is hard to put up with people? Certain people, even a little bit, something about them, their personality, their theology, their leadership, their intelligence, something just rubs you the wrong way. It's hard to put up with that. If you haven't, I'll bet anything you will one day. It happens. And we've been going through a sermon series on being connected in community and going through the one another's of the New Testament. Today we're going to look at a passage that talks about us bearing with one another, putting up with one another. And since not bearing with one another can destroy community, the opposite of what we're trying to do, it's worth taking some time to look at. So if you have your Bibles, or if you've got one on the way in, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, in the middle of the New Testament. We're going to be in the very beginning of the chapter. Let's pray as we open God's Word together. Lord, you are awesome, and you are holy, you are loving, you are great. We worship you this morning together. And now we're going to come to your Word and see what you have to say to us. We pray that you would speak to each one of us. Help us to see things that we haven't seen before, to learn things, to grow, and to apply things into our lives that will help us grow more into your likeness. pray this in your name. Amen. So the passage we're in today, like I said, Ephesians 4, it's right at the turning point of the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul has discussed in detail our redemption, our election, our salvation, based on God's grace and his forgiveness, his kindness, and through faith alone. And in chapter 4, he shifts gears. He starts talking about application and how it relates to our life, how the message and everything that Christ has done plays out in our day-to-day lives. So we're right at the turning point. And without further ado, let's read chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Paul is speaking, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So right off the bat, Paul tells people, in light of all that God's done from the first three chapters, and as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, other versions say, I plead with you, I beg you, or implore you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That calling that we've received is the gospel, our salvation, the call we received when we were saved. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that God has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul says we're to live a life worthy of this calling. Basically, living up to it. You're called, so live like it. Live like you're called. So how are we supposed to live up to this amazing calling that God has given? Well, Paul answers it, and I put it this way. That in order to live up to our calling, we need to patiently put up with one another in love. 
as believers, we need to live up to our call by patiently bearing with one another. We need to patiently put up with one another in love. Read again in verse 1 and 2. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. See the one another there? Bear with one another in love. Now, I said we need to put up with one another because that's what it means to bear with one another. It's a nice way of saying that we're hard to get along with. Paul admits it. It's like you're going to have to bear with one another. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes, but we're not supposed to bail ship and leave and run away when we run into imperfections. We're to bear with one another, to put up with one another. Now, putting up with things can be hard. It really can be. Anyone who knows me well knows that I can't stand bananas. <laughs> I can't stand bananas. I can't stand their taste, their texture, their smell, their peel, everything about them. I just can't stand them. For any of you who are Filipino here or from other parts of the world, this actually includes the close relative, plantain. <laughs> I just... I can't stand it. Don't be horrified by that. But uh, this has created a couple of very awkward moments for me in people's homes where they serve food. There was one time we were at a Mexican family's home, and they served us uh, as a major part of the meal some plantain. And uh, I, <laughs> I looked at it, oh boy, and this is going to be fun. <laughs> but I knew if I didn't eat what was on my plate, I'd seriously offend these people. And so you weigh it like, well, do I embarrass myself or do I embarrass them? I have to embarrass myself. So I choke them down, trying to hide my occasional gags. And <laughs> yeah, I had a really hard time putting up it and keeping down <laughs> that food. It can be, <laughs> now that's a funny example, but it can be much harder to put up with people than it is to put up with food. Putting up with people, I mean, with certain foods, we can just avoid them. We can't avoid people. As Christians, we're told to love one another. To love one another. And that doesn't come through avoidance. The NASB translates verse 2. It says, show tolerance for one another in love. Show tolerance for one another in love. Now, in our culture in Canada... Tolerance really reigns as king. You are allowed to do almost anything you want to in your life, short of maybe killing someone. And even then, killing the unborn is a hallowed right. But you're allowed to promote Islamic Sharia law, which abuses women. You're allowed to become an animist or a witch even if you want to, a vampire. You can believe in aliens and zombies and mythological beings from the past. You can write a book that claims Jesus married Mary Magdalene. And it becomes a bestseller. But mention that you believe in absolute truth. Say that Jesus is the only way to God. Or that certain actions are actually sin? <laughs> You're crucified as being intolerant. 
You can't say that. That's intolerant. You're not tolerating other people and their choices. So when we come to the Bible, and Paul says here to be sure to show tolerance for one another, is that the kind of tolerance he's talking about? Putting up with anything and everything by anyone at any time? Well, if you look at Paul's teaching as a whole, you can't, he cannot be referring to this because it would contradict everything he's taught. He can't be referring to this tolerance. If there isn't a right way to live, why would he write people telling them how to live? If there aren't sinful actions, why would you write people telling them to put sin to death? It wouldn't stand up. Here's the problem with the kind of tolerance the world promotes. See, tolerance in general can be a good thing. It can be. Tolerance of sin is not. Now, that doesn't mean we go about imprisoning people over, like, sins. We're not, we don't bear the sword. The government bears the sword. We aren't in charge of that. But we need to be able to make people aware of their sin in order to make them aware of their need for a Savior. You get that? We need to be able to point out sin in order to point people to Christ. So what are we supposed to tolerate? If Paul says, show tolerance for one another, is there a good kind of tolerance? The Bible says there is. See, here's the thing with good tolerance. A good tolerance sees sin. It observes it. It happens. And then it forgives it. It doesn't ignore it or excuse it like the world's tolerance does. Good tolerance accepts people into the family of God by grace, just like God accepts us. It accepts people by grace. It doesn't reject people based on their sin or their past. See, if, not, if, if the gospel rejected people based on sin, none of us could stand. We couldn't. Good tolerance understands each other when we fall or we fail. It's like, I understand. It's hard to fight sin. But it still calls us to repentance, and it still calls us to live holy lives. It's saddened by our sin. But it's not surprised. A good tolerance puts up with each other's weaknesses. See, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and God intends them to work in harmony. Together. Good tolerance puts up with non-crucial disagreements in theology. Now, I need to be clear. We cannot tolerate beliefs that compromise the gospel. But there are many beliefs that we have that are different from one another. They're not core issues of our faith and based on different interpretations of God's word. And though good tolerance puts up with that in peace. Good tolerance puts up with different people's personalities or their intelligence or their appearance. Basically, it puts up with anything that is not wrong or sinful. Sure, some people's personality may rub you the wrong way, or maybe their face just bugs you. But we're told to bear with one another in these areas, to tolerate the differences, the variety. 
You see the difference between the world's tolerance and a good tolerance? It's a big difference. Now, do you see how we're supposed to bear with one another in this passage? In verse 2 it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, patiently. That's why I said we need to patiently put up with one another. See, we improve slowly as humans. It's a slow process. Sanctification can take a lot of time. It will take your whole life. And even then, you won't reach perfection until the other side. Do you ever go up to one of your parents and really exaggerate something that bothered you? (laughs) Mom, I'm starving. (laughs) When are we going to eat? I'm dying here. I can't wait till dinner. Dad, Johnny is driving me crazy. I can't stand him. He keeps putting his hand on my side of the car. (laughs) Or are we almost there yet? I gotta go. (laughs) I can't hold it anymore. (laughs) How did their parents always answer? (laughs) You can wait. They knew better. You can wait. You can put up with your brother. You can hold it. Might pull over a little sooner, but you can hold it. They know, and they tell us. And I think Paul would answer the same way. A lot of our excuses. We might say in the church, I can't stand this one guy. He drives me crazy. Or that one lady, she really gets on my nerves. And Paul would say, No, you can put up with one another. You can. One day, we'll be perfectly sanctified. But until that day, you can wait. Patience. Bear with one another. And how we treat one another, we see, always needs to be tied to love. It says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Loving each other as Christ loved us. The New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Even by just putting up with one another, it's a way that we show one another love. Not lashing out in anger or impatience or bitterness, but with patience and love. That's what God did for us, after all. How did God react we kept sinning again and again and again. He rightfully could have poured judgment and wrath out on us. Totally in his right to do so. And he still did. He still poured out judgment. But it wasn't on us. It was on his son. On the cross. And Christ died in a way to order in order to let God put up with us. To put up with our failures, to put up with our sin. And today God reaches out to each one of us with this patience, this love. We don't deserve it. He never deserved it. 
Have you accepted his offer yet? His offer of being forgiven? His offer of grace? If you haven't, you need to. It's not something that can wait. Come to God, admit your sin, ask for his forgiveness. Promise to live for him. As I say every week, I'd love to talk with you more. It's really something that needs to, you really need to come to grips with and understand. So if you have questions or you have objections, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Now even though that God did this for us, showed his infinite love for us, doesn't mean it's easy. It can still be hard to put up with people, with one another, and to do so with patience and love. And we are so different from one another that it's not easy to forgive or to overlook or to accept differences. And that's why I think Paul includes another command in this verse, a command that tells us to pursue two virtues that will help us tolerate one another better. The second thing I think we see in this passage tells us that patiently putting up with one another requires humility and gentleness. In order to patiently put up with one another, we need to pursue humility and gentleness. Bearing with one another really requires these two things. Again, verse 1 and 2, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's no coincidence that Paul put these two commands back to back. Not at all. Notice Paul didn't say, make other people humble and gentle, and then it's easier to bear with them. Well, it would be. That's not what he says, though. He says, be completely humble and gentle. And then be patient, bearing with one another. Your goal should not be to make others' culture, minor beliefs, or personality fit with your own. You should be the one making the sacrifices. So what does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to be humble? We talked a little bit about it last week, and we'll be looking at it again later in this series. But being humble is really having a proper viewpoint of yourself. In light of who God is, and what he's done, and who we are, and what we've done. And as a wretched sinner, before a holy God. And then letting that attitude affect how we live with people around us. That's humility. To truly bear with one another requires humility. Sometimes we need to bear with one another's preferences for the way things run in church, the way things happen. That takes humility. Bearing with other people's opinions on how money is spent can take humility. Bearing with one another's preferences for the music, what style of music to use, how that comes across. Younger and older people both need to bear with one another here. In humility. Do you have the humility it takes? What if the church leadership makes a decision you don't agree with? It's a chance for you to humbly bear with us. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We're also told here to be gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. Now, for the men here, gentleness does not equal weakness or womanliness. 
Okay? That's not what Paul is saying. Gentleness really is a strength. I single out the men because this is more difficult for us. It's a lot harder for us to be gentle. Gentleness does not mean you can't act like a man. It means it's more of an ability to restrain yourself. To have self-control. A self-control over your emotions and your actions. And then being gentle with people. Rage and anger are not gentle. Neither are they strong. Being self-controlled is to be strong and gentle. And for all of us, we need to patiently put up with one another with gentleness. It requires it. If we're getting extremely annoyed or angry with one another, or getting into physical concentrations or yelling matches, it's not gentle. And certainly it's not bearing with one another in love. Now this verse does say we need to be completely humble and gentle. What's with that? Wouldn't that be impossible? Of course it is. It's impossible for us to be completely, 100% humble and gentle. But that doesn't mean we should give up because we won't ever attain it on this side of heaven. This should be our goal and our pursuit. It's our sanctification. It's like a parent telling their child when they leave them with a babysitter, be good. They don't expect their child, or at least they shouldn't expect their child to be 100% completely good for the babysitter. But if the child has in their mind to obey their parents, to set that as their goal, to be good, they'll probably be better than if they didn't. And Paul knows we won't be completely humble and gentle, but to make it our goal. And then we'll likely be a bit more humble bit more gentle, by the Holy Spirit's help, we'll be able to better put up with one another in love. Now at this point, many of you have probably been asking the question, we've gone through all this, but why? Why is it important for us to bear with one another? If people are being so difficult or annoying, can't we just avoid them somehow? Can't we stay home and watch church online or on TV? Can't we... Just leave, find another one. Well, the answer Paul gives us is very important to understand. In the next few verses, Paul gives us what should be our motivation for putting up with one another. He says that we need to patiently put up with one another because patiently putting up with one another maintains peaceful unity. When we patiently put up with one another, we maintain a peaceful unity that the Spirit gives And it maintains this unity. Read in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now the NIV here starts a new sentence in verse 3, as if it's a separate thought. But it's not. Paul continues right on with the same thought in these verses. It's like a run-on sentence. Some of your versions may reflect this. The NASB says, Showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Or the ESV says, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. They're connected. Why why we should want to bear with one another is to maintain this unity of the Spirit. Being united with one another, of one mind, one heart. We should be eager to do this, it says. Make every effort. 
keep the unity of the Spirit. Why should we be eager to do this? Well, it's not, for one, it's not man-made unity, is it? It's the unity of the Spirit. Often we fall into thinking in our churches that we can create some sense of unity. We can create a united front. And that that unity depends on us. But we cannot create unity. We're placed into unity by God. I chose the word maintain very carefully. Remember what it said in ESV. It says, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We need to maintain it. Not create it or keep it. My wife and I are in the process of trying to sell our apartment. And we're trying to eventually be moving into a small house when before the baby is born. And so we're shopping around and trying to get our house ready to sell. And we've done a fair amount of work and cleaning to the house. On Tuesday, we found out that we had a showing the next afternoon. And so we get home at night at like 9 o'clock. And our house was pretty much a disaster. And so we had to frantically start cleaning the house. We started packing boxes, washing the fridge, doing laundry, dusting, picking up our mess everywhere. Now, our home is very clean. It's ready to show to prospective buyers. But just by living in the house, it keeps getting messy. We have to take showers. We have to... We have to change clothes. We have to eat dinner. And so it happens. But now that the house is already by the, pretty much clean, we're already in a clean house. We don't have to do another crazy midnight cleaning blitz. Or we don't have to create the house or even create the overall cleanliness. We have to maintain it. We have to keep working on it. Keep it clean. It's similar with unity. Except every analogy breaks down, I know that. But the Holy Spirit has placed us within this peaceful unity already. We're already in it. We can't create some kind of superficial, but we can maintain it. Keep it strong. Maintain the unity that's automatically given by the Spirit. And we do that here by patiently putting up with one another. Putting up with one another's weaknesses and struggles and differences. See, when we aren't unified... We're really placing ourselves outside of what the Spirit has already placed us in. We're taking ourselves out of it. Verse 3 says that we can keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul here says that we have been bonded together in peace. What happens when you take some superglue and bond two things together? Say two pieces of wood. You're not getting them separated. They're bonded together. Basically, for all intents and purposes, they become one piece of wood. It's similar. We've been, that's the picture. We've been bonded together. It's not meant to be separated. We've been bonded together in one body, the church. In fact, that's where Paul goes next in the next few verses. Read with me from verse 3. It says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, we need to maintain this unity because we are part of the one church. You know that? That you are part of the one church of Jesus Christ on earth? Universal church? The church that all who have believed in Jesus as their Savior are a part of. This goes past denominational lines, past backgrounds, past worship styles, past differences, past cultures. We're part of one church. And we're to be unified with other Christians. We're not the lone church here in Ottawa. There are other faithful believers of Christ. And this will include many denominations, some which you might not be comfortable with. If people have accepted Christ as they, by faith, through grace alone, as their way to heaven, then they are with you in one family. Don't view them as enemies or outsiders. They're not. View them as family. Now you might ask, if there's only one church, why are there so many denominations at all? Like what's the... What's the matter with that? Well, I believe that why we have so many denominations really is primarily a sign of mankind's sin still existing in the church. See, if we were perfectly united, had perfect understanding, and, were, and knew everything perfectly, as we will one day, it'd be no problem being united together in one church without denominations. Over hundreds of years, some minor differences and some major differences have but they were primarily in methods or practices or traditions, they've created some breaks and some schisms, different traditions, different denominations. It's not the way God intended, and it's really an unfortunate situation we find ourselves in today that we have to work in. But we can't be scared to work with other churches that preach the gospel. We really shouldn't. And you know what? In heaven, there won't be any denominations. Or I should say, there will be one. The one that worships Jesus Christ as their Savior. We'll be united. Sometimes we get so caught up in our differences, we forget our similarities. Or if we forget, not much similarities, but we forget what we have in common with one another. People start complaining like they, that they have nothing in common with one another. They start saying things like, I'll use myself as an example. No one else here in this church is an English-speaking, white, male, in their mid-twenties, with a pregnant wife, and who's a pastor. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who doesn't like bananas, right? <laughs> There's no one like that. So it's like, I have nothing in common with people. I, like, I forget, I just get in that mindset, and so I'm like, okay, I have to start looking for a church with more people like me. We laugh, but it's true. People do that. And it's so wrong, because I do have the most important thing in common with each one of you that is saved. We have our God in common. You young people have this in common with the oldest people here. 
Are you from a different country? Have a different first language? Different stage of life? Different background? Different social status? You have Christ in common. This may come into play as we, uh, as we get small groups launched and you're placed within a small group. You may not like some of the people that you're in the group with. They may be very different from you. It happened. They may be too old or too young. They might be too loud for your liking or too quiet. Maybe too smart or too dumb. <laughs> too weird. Just different. You may feel at times in the church that you have nothing in common with people. Don't focus on those differences. Focus on what you have in common. Because even if you don't have anything else in common, you both have Christ. So next time you find it hard to relate to someone in the church, to put up with them, maybe something about them just annoys you to no end. Or maybe they disagree with some theological point that you believe in. Or maybe you have a huge generational gap with someone, and you just can't understand them. If you can think of no other reason to be united with them, or at least to bear with them, to put up with them, think about what you have in common. As this passage says, you are part of one church, the one body, there's one body. You both have the same Holy Spirit within you. You have both been called to the same hope. You have one Lord, Jesus Christ. You have one faith in Jesus. You have both been baptized into Jesus Christ. You both have the same Heavenly Father, and you both worship and serve the same God who is over all and through all and in all. That's plenty enough reason for us to strive to live up to our calling by humbly, gently, and patiently putting up with one another, bearing with one another, and all in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the cross, which took all of us of different nationalities, different backgrounds, different languages, different preferences, different ages, and united us. We thank you for bringing us into this family, the church of Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. We thank you. Help us to live up to our calling. Please help your spirit to work on us, to work inside of us to keep us faithful, and to keep us loving one another. We ask this in your name. Amen.